I'm pausing for a second because you got you heard a little bit of my you guys heard some of my um, alerts. <laughs> we did. Yeah. We, did. we just we like to reinforce on this program how busy people are. So that's totally fine. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Human Element, Kara's podcast on modern marketing. And if you've been following along at home, then you will know that this is the 100th. It is unbelievable, Jason. We're here, the 100th. Cue fanfare now. <laughs> and to celebrate our special 100th episode, we have the perfect guest, Christina Pyle, Chief Equity Officer for Dentsu Americas. Christina I know this is a heavy burden for you to bear, but thank you so much for coming to the 100th episode. We, we are so thrilled to have you. No, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for the love. Thanks for the visibility. 100th is meaningful, and I, I feel like now the pressure to catch up on all 99 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're going to give you till next week at least. Thanks. Generous. So you just joined Dentsu about uh, six months ago or so. I'm always fascinated by people's journeys. And so I'd love to get sort of a, a summary of your journey to this point and what made you make the decision to come. Well, I tell people that I just I either love the advertising industry or I can't seem to quit the advertising industry. And I've spent the last 15 years in advertising. And I came in, interesting enough, I came in, I got my big shot in 2007. So to be here, to be at Dentsu in this moment and ha to have started my career at another time of crisis. So, you know, in between there, you know, I started my career with MAPE, Multicultural Advertising Internship Program. So you will find nobody who's a bigger believer in the diversity, equity, inclusion programs to disrupt the industry. I'm a big believer because I've been, I've been a factor. And, you know, MAPE was the opportunity of a lifetime that gave me a lifetime of opportunity. So you will see some mapers here this summer. I'm super proud to, to also bring on an intern. I have over the 15 years, I've worked on the client side and I've worked for the Ogilvy's and the Widens and the Omnicoms of the world. But I also have worked kind of, I say I worked in the industry and I've worked for the industry. So mm -hmm. I did two tours of duty at nonprofit advocacy groups with Ad Color and with Time's Up. And so super proud of the work we did at Ad Color because I came in when Ad Color was still an idea on a napkin. And the work that we've done to make that, you know, one of the most recognizable brands in diversity, equity, inclusion is incredible. Is there something about this particular role at Dentsu that jumped out to you and said, oh, I've got to go do that? You know, I guess assessing any roles, there's, there's multiple roles to consider in this moment. So a lot of companies were looking for who could be their leader of diversity, equity, inclusion. So Dentsu stood out head and shoulders because of the people. I mean, you make decisions on where you're going to work for the people that you're going to report into and the people you have to collaborate with. So... <laughs> You know, I went through a, a kind of gauntlet or a challenge of multiple interviews, meeting multiple people, particularly knowing I was going to be working with Jackie. And I did that outside, you know, that outside pressure testing where you go and you <laughs> ask 
about this person and with, with Jackie in particular, she had the same story from everybody I asked about her. She had the same story. It was a consistent message, an impeccable reputation. And people said, you are never going to work for a better person and you are never going to work harder in your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Jackie is somebody who, who is already practicing the allyship, who is already practicing you know, the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, Wendy also as our global leader, and, and some of the people I met along the way. So there felt like an authenticity. Dentsu felt like someplace I could belong. And, you know, coming in, in the, uh, over the last six months, I, I can tell quickly that I'm going to make deep relationships here. I might meet some of my best friends here. And I definitely feel like I belong here. Obviously, our industry is in the midst of another attempt at an awakening on equity, inclusion, and opportunity. I mean, we've been down this road. By my very old man calculations, this is my third view of it. And it probably has a few more than that. We've been down this road unsuccessfully as an industry. I mean, we have to be pretty blunt. It's not worked anywhere near to the level that it needs to. Why is that? What is it about the industry that has caused it to struggle so much historically on these issues? Well, I mean, it's a prioritization of of the work. And diversity, equity, inclusion takes work. And so it's really hard in climates, you know, over the last 15 years, we've gone through a lot as an industry, you know, with shrinking marketing budgets, but with higher demands from our clients. You know, clients have increasingly taken work in-house. We have to keep up with the speed of change, the pace of change, and the speed of technology. We've had data privacy issues. We've had a war on talent with other industries, tech, you know, taking our best talent. So then we've had, you know, DNI leaders without resources. We've had like, they call them historically the departments of one. We've mm-hmm. had a lack of funding for DNI. And you know what you, what you prioritize is what you're willing to pay for. We have had a lack of leadership buy-in in the past. And we've been spinning our wheels around the business case of diversity, equity, and inclusion instead of the business impact. Hmm. There's been a trending of issues. We have treated diversity, equity, and inclusion like we do other trends that are here today and gone tomorrow, where we've hyper-focused on one part of the issue, where you've seen you know, amazing advancement for white women in the advertising industry but at the detriment of talking about what's most difficult and digging in on what's most difficult first, it's having courageous conversations around race. You can point to myriad reasons why we have not gotten it right, but I I say, you know, we've had a ton of extraneous pressure and we haven't prioritized DNI right. And so instead of saying it's the side work, we're now learning that it is the work. Yeah. What makes you feel like this time is different? I think this time has to be different. We're seeing a tanning of America where that minority majority is, is a very near-term reality. LGBTQ identifying and wanting no labels is very much front and center in the workplace that is now 50% millennial in the U.S. That comes with a change in sentiment. And we're now learning that as Dentsu, our first consumer is our employees. Mm. I would say cultural fluency is the new business currency. And I think people, who is going to win the future are the leaders. They're going to be able to navigate and support very culturally different, very culturally nuanced and sensitive teams. 
all of these factors make this moment ripe and particularly different than it has been in the past, and, and which gives me hope for not carrying on the same issues into the future. So we, like a lot of organizations, are working to build these new frameworks for equity and inclusion. And you mentioned kind of making it the work, moving it into a more central role in the business. In fact, making it the central role uh, in some instances in the business. And then connecting that in turn to, you know, senior leadership accountability and performance. What are we doing at Densu on those fronts specifically? I mean, I think we are starting to position ourselves as a teaching hospital. So you at Densu, you can come and learn the leadership skills, like I said, to support you know, more culturally complex teams, holding our leaders accountable. We are diversity myself and diversity leaders that we're putting in place at all of the service lines, reporting directly into their CEOs. That is a level of accountability to the CEOs. We're asking our CEOs to be as fluent about the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion as their counterparts in diversity. Other, you know, processes and systems we put in place are biannual DNI reviews with Jackie. And that is a chance to look under the hood at the numbers, how the numbers have changed and what the DNI data tells us. It also gives us a chance to review and pressure test what programs, what initiatives are working and what's not working, and revisit kind of the, the overall strategy. You know, DNI analytics is, is a new frontier uh, for Densu, it's a new frontier for the industry. That in itself is a way for us to hold ourselves, hold our leaders more accountable and eventually adding, you know, the, the work to contributing to culture at Densu into our performance reviews will be another level of accountability. So what has surprised you the most the past six months? There's so much change and internally and externally, you know, we're navigating our own transformation. And in the midst of that, the generosity of the people at Dentsu, the spirit and resilience of the people at Dentsu has been just really inspiring to watch. You know, another thing that really surprised me is that I, I honestly feel like I can belong here. And, and I said it previously, but I feel like I will make some of the deepest relationships, some of the best business relationships and be challenged by the people I meet along the way in this network. You know, another thing that surprises me is how deep the bench is of DNI champions. It's 400 plus people who, in and above their day jobs, are working to make this, you know, a culture of inclusion and a place where everybody feels like they belong and they can do the best work of their lives. So it's the people of Densu and their generosity, I think, overall, that has surprised me and delighted me. It's a beautiful answer. Let's change gears a little bit. Obviously, a lot of our business is media. It's a big percentage of our, of our revenue. You know, we saw this summer with the Facebook boycott movement. We've seen other digital platforms with issues around equity inclusion and, you know, disinformation related to those topics. I guess my question here is, what role do we as an agency partner, as a global network have to play as an advisor here to our clients not just around the messaging that they build, but the way that they engage with media to place their spend. Like what, what, what's the right role? Well, I think, you know, we are a client services business. You know, we do have to keep those relationships and we do have to keep a seat at the table. And we have to keep the hard earned trust with our clients because what that affords us is a chance to 
kind of lead them and influence them and not lag behind them. It gives us a chance to advise them on how we operate, how we live our values, and really how to be a force for good in the world. So it can be a little tricky because we do have to keep that client relationship because without that client, we lose our ability to influence them. Influence, yeah. We have to continue to articulate and live up to our own values, which I feel like has, you know, influence on our clients. You know, we have constituencies within the organization right now that are, you know, vocal about some of the places where we engage with partners. I mean, that that's going to be reality in our business, right? What's the right role for us to play in representing clients, but also listening to our internal constituencies that that do have, you know, in some cases, real concerns. How do we balance that? Well, I think, one, revisiting our values, articulating our values, living our values. And, you know, with existing clients, it becomes a little bit more challenging. Mm. We're always pitching new clients. And there is the opportunity to align our values that's going to be the frontier that's increasingly more scrutinized is, you know, does this client, you know, stand with us or do they stand in opposition to our values? So I think that, I think the big opportunity is in bringing on new clients, but not losing sight that, you know, we have a POV and we have a way that we do business. And so we're all in this moment called to have courageous conversations. So I think some of our client leaders, are going to have to do the same thing. You mentioned values a couple of times. And, you know, that's a huge part of the conversation right now, not just internally, but externally in the work we do for clients. All of this kind of leads me to a bigger question around what is our role in the world to project our values into that world? And, and how, do we, how do we defend them? Are there things that we should be doing more of to, to do that right now? Well, we are broken into three service lines mm. and we have our creative, we have our CFM and we have our media. And if you look at it in that way, we have an opportunity with all three of these verticals to show up as a force for good in the world for our people and for our clients. And so, you know, the, the responsibility for our creative service line is, you know, is an outsized responsibility in my opinion, because we're the shapers of narratives and of those 30 and 60 second stories that people bring into their homes. We have an opportunity to debunk stereotypes and to introduce new voices and tell new narratives. You know, so our creative service line has a responsibility. Our, you know, CXM is data driven and, you know, one of their taglines is truth in numbers. So we have a responsibility to use that engine to extrapolate the information and tell the truth and be more transparent and use the data-driven approach to be able to get to the problem faster. And then in media, you know, we have an opportunity to be ethical and sustainable and be an industry leader. Through that lens, we have a way that we can show up and a call to action for everybody. Do you think... Even though the industry as a whole, when we talked about this at the top, has not been anywhere near as successful on equity inclusion issues as we would have liked. But do you think that the opportunity still remains for us as an industry 
to have an outsized role or a greater than the sum of our parts impact role in changing how, you know, popular culture discussions evolve, how corporate responsibility discussions evolve. You know, we're, we're an industry where we've always sort of had, we've punched above our weight on influence because we're not a terribly big industry, but we, we have a lot of influence because of the power of what the work that we do in messaging and, and, and influence in media. Do you think that that's still an opportunity for us that we as an industry, that that avenue to be a leader to guide more change for the country is there? Yeah, the opportunity is still there and it's something that we haven't realized yeah. yet. You've seen glimpses of inclusion and glimpses of living up to the industry that we espouse. The representation in front of the camera has changed considerably in my time doing this work. Mm. The, the representation behind the camera has not in the, you know, in the production, the directors, the even the client services people. That's the opportunity for equity. You know, in creating safety and clear pathways for, for women and people of color. And, you know, the, even the message, we've gone a long way from GoDaddy. <laughs> we've come a long <laughs> way from GoDaddy. <laughs> We're, uh, that's, we have a good, made, that's a good one. We've made incredible strides as an industry. It's just we're, the work is not done. I think the, the young shall lead. So I, I, we're on the precipice of incredible change. Well, I agree with that last bit, particularly in our industry. Was there something growing up that interested you? Like if, if, if we would go back in time and talk to, you know, 12-year-old Christina or 13-year-old Christina, was, was there something that was true for you then that would have highlighted your desire to be in this industry? In the industry or in the work I do? Actually, I'll take the work you do. Yeah. You know, I've talked about growing up with, you know, very middle, lower middle class parents who wanted us to have the best education. So we lived in very predominantly white areas and mm -hmm. then went to, you know, very white schools with kids with a lot of wealth and affluence. And I always felt othered and I always felt not rich enough and not white enough. Mm. I will also say that the messages in media were, you know, the Britney Spears is beautiful and the white guys on the Abercrombie bags are what you should wow. desire. And the, the women at uh, Victoria's Secret are who you should be. And it was just, if you think about TV at the time, it was constantly white images. Yeah. So that told you, that told you, you know, PNG did the work of My Black is Beautiful. And they have an ad where they talk about pretty for a black girl. Mm. And it's a line, pretty for a black girl, pretty for a black girl. And that's a line I've heard my entire life. Mm. So these are, these are the things that sit with you. I would go home and my parents were so proud to be black. They were proud of something that I went to school with and had so much shame over. They were so proud of. And they would fill our heads with black literature and black film, black artists and black owners. We'd go out to dinner to black owned restaurants and they, they, would, they just wanted me to feel a sense of pride. Mm. And so the dichotomy of those. Yeah, the conflict, yeah. Kind of just, they, they continue. They continue to play out inside of who I am. I just don't want anybody to feel othered. And I don't want anybody to let, be left out of opportunity for this incredible industry, a place where you can go and get a 401k and be a creative person. I, I love it. So, 
That's so true. Ah, that's so true. That's very funny. As opposed to, you know, the Middle Ages. No 401k in the Middle Ages. You could try to yeah. be creative, though. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, where did you grow up in terms of location in the country? I'll tell you if you won't judge me. I grew up in, you know, a, a little town next to Hershey, Pennsylvania called Hummelstown. So population, uh eh, 3,400. So there, judge that. I grew up in Tampa, Florida, but okay. I, grew up, I grew up bouncing around a little bit. I mean, my dad worked in TV news. Okay. You know, so we, you would move around to the different designated market areas to get bigger and bigger sure. opportunity. You know, we moved from Atlanta to Boston mm. to... Tampa, Florida, where I, where I say it came of age, you know, just out there on boats. <laughs> they do love their boats, apparently, in Tampa. They do. They love their boats. <laughs> and then I've lived in New York for the last 15 years. But yeah. people meet me and they say, are you from the West Coast? So mm. I don't know where I'm from. So was there a time when you knew you wanted to move to New York as a kid? No, I, I saw myself on the West Coast. I saw myself in... Okay. California, San Francisco, through the MAPE internship, they asked me to be an intern. Yeah. And then Tiffany R. Warren, who is the founder sure. of AdColor, asked for me specifically out of that pool of interns. I said, I have plans to go to work in San Francisco or LA. She said, you want to move to New York and you want to work with me. <laughs> and so, you know, I moved to New York and you you get seduced by the level of intellect, the palpable ambition, the, you know, everybody can be a creative. You turn off your TV and you live and I can't seem to quit advertising. I can't seem to quit this expensive city. The reason why I ask is because I can, I can remember as a kid, I was 14 years old the first time I came to Manhattan. I remember I was on a class trip. I was on a bus. So I get off the bus and we gotten up at the crack of dawn. And I step off this bus into 1984. 1985 Times Square, which was slightly different than what it is right now. We had gone to see a, a musical. And uh, I was just like, this is everything. I, and I, literally, I was in the, the <laughs> it was not the high rent district. I can assure you of that. But I was, I was smitten from that day. There's no, there's no doubt. So I love listening to people's New York stories. And thank you for sharing that, by the way. I appreciate you doing a little bio. Getting back to the industry a second. Because you talk to a lot of younger people in the organization, in the industry itself. You know, what do you tell them about why they should make a career in it? I, I mean, I, I joked about it earlier, but I say you can be, you know, creative and get a 401k. And I, you know, I, I talk- That should to be on young, a t-shirt. I feel like that's a, that's a good t-shirt. I talk to young people about their personal finances a lot. So I actually do say that line. Hmm. I also tried to sell them on the influence our industry has over culture. And as you know, young people continue to value money and compensation differently, they need a reason to believe. So a paycheck is simply not enough. They need to feel the purpose. And a, a purpose for joining our industry is our influence over culture and the way people are represented and therefore the way they are treated. Mm. I also talked to them about what we're building. You know, this is a movement. Everybody who joins in on the work of diversity, equity, inclusion is on a movement to make this an industry where future generations can, can feel like they belong and really, really be protected as they do incredible work. And so I tell them what I'm doing. 
what I'm doing is so that you can step into this industry and write into the work. That's kind of how I sell young people. They can go get some cereal and a scooter in the tech industry. And, you know, they can go chase a paycheck in the finance industry. But this, what we do is different. It is different. It is different. Question I have for you, you know, what role do clients or what advice do you have for clients around both helping their agencies and helping their own organizations make more progress on uh, diversity, equity, inclusion? Like what, what should those client conversations be with the agency? What are the kinds of things that clients should be working on both prodding their agencies to do, but also sort of working collaboratively to accomplish? You can imagine incredible change has happened when the clients call on us to do different and be different. I'm thinking of when the when our clients like Mark Pritchard or like mm-hmm. Diego Scotti, they called on us and they said, we need to see different pitch teams. We need to see diversified pitch teams. We mm-hmm. want to know in the new business pitch how you're going to staff this business if you win it. What is that, what is that diversity makeup going to look like? When they tell us to put the diversity inclusion into the MSA, it gets really serious really quick. I would tell our clients to hold us accountable, hold us accountable to the values that we espouse and that we want to be meaningful partners. I like the client pressure. They want to see how we're spending our money with minority-owned, women-owned, LGBT-owned suppliers. I look forward to the day where we're putting pressure on our clients instead of being on the receiving end of that pressure. I think you're exactly right there. I think right now it's a little bit one way, but I look forward to the point where it's, it's, it's a more mutual thing. One of the things that I think about a lot is, you know, we're a, we're a wildly divided country on a trillion different levels. And I'm not going to, this is not a political question. Don't, don't stress. One of the things I think about a lot is, you know, I look back on my own experience growing up. Now, again, that was 700 years ago, so it doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to now, but I grew up in a, in a high school in a class of 276 kids in the middle of central Pennsylvania. We had one black kid, Bill Brooks, great guy. I think about, you know, 17-year-old Robert in 1987 talking to Bill, which I did, you know, more than I think a lot of other kids in my school, but a lot less than I probably should have. And I think about what can we do? What advice can we have for kids and parents who are are raising kids in parts of the country where there just isn't a lot of diversity, but but they need to be prepared to work in a world that's fundamentally different than the world they see every single day. And I don't know that they're getting that in the current environment. What would you say to those folks? I actually get this question a lot from thoughtful parents, coworkers, friends from the past who believe this themselves, but now are seeing their kids in very white and privileged spaces. Mm. I have a lot of friends from growing up who will call me in and say, I cannot believe I didn't show up more for you back then. Mm. It's to the point of your your friend, the onlyest and the loneliest at school. Yeah. You know, the LGBT community made incredible advances in just 10 years when media changed. 
So we saw, we started to see more LGBT people in commercials and we saw more yeah. LGBT people in TV shows. And, and yep. you would look at a TV show and you would say, oh, it feels like there's an LGBT character on every TV show. And there'd be some people in parts of the country they'd never met an LGBT person. But when they went to the polls, they voted for that story, that person that they really loved in the show. Mm. And that had an incredible impact on legislation. So yep. you see the relationship between media and what we do and literally changing people's lives. And we all want our kids to go to the best schools, the safest schools, or maybe just the school that's in our district. But you're going to have to fortify that experience with the books, the television, mm -hmm. and going out of your way to involve your kids in a sports team that doesn't look like them or an art school that doesn't look like them in the same way that my parents had to do with me. I went to these schools and I came home and they had to almost deprogram and make sure that my esteem, my self-worth, I could see my contributions and my lineage contributions to what makes this country great. It takes work. Yeah. It takes work. But I think that is the work because we're going to have to lead and navigate culture in new and different ways like we've never seen before. I'm excited. Thank you for that. Last one, and then we're going to get into the lightning round, so get excited. I'm so excited. I can, I can like barely contain myself on this <laughs> We're seven or eight months on from the events of the summer. What gives you reason for hope in this country, and what doesn't? What gives me hope is allyship like I've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. The allyship that we've always been waiting for. And mm -hmm. I, I think a shared sense of outrage. That has been inspiring. It has been touching. It has been, in some ways, healing to see that. Mm. What gives me pause is, you know, a certain kind of fatigue. There's a change fatigue. There's an immunity to change. And we're asking people, even at Dentsu, we're asking people to do a lot. Yep. We're asking them to learn the eight ways. We're asking them to learn new ways of working. And they might not be able to jump on a a plane and go connect with their clients like they used to. Yep. We're also asking them to become culturally fluent overnight and to show up as anti-racist. Yeah. These are all the things we have to ask of our people because this is what it takes to lead the future to and, and to lead our clients and to navigate out of this. So this is these are all fair asks. It's a lot. So I'm worried about a certain sense of fatigue. Another thing that gives me equal parts excitement as it does terror is <laughs> we in this moment with the new ways of working, we stand to lose a lot of the gains that we've made for inclusion, particularly around women. As we enter this caregiving crisis with women who are taking on big roles at work, they are at home doing at home work. Yep. They are caring for elderly parents at the same time that they're taking care of kids. So, and that's not everybody's story, different parts of that. So I'm a little bit worried about the impact on our ways of working on women and parents or caregivers in general. But also this moment, we are architecting a new way of working. We're designing the future of work, which is, in, it, that is incredible in itself. But if the people who are designing the future, if that is not inclusive and that's not really thoughtful, we stand to 
design work that doesn't work for everybody. And I need you to know that I cannot go into an office again that is really cold in temperature. It's just, it wasn't designed for me. I was so cold. Uh, well, you and I may not be destined to work on the same floor then because going into like, you know, it's 74 degrees and I want to melt. That's, you know, because I run this office here in the house. It's it's chilly right here, right now. This is like the Ed Sullivan Theater under the Letterman administration. See, it's this cold. This is the problem. Men were on these calls and in these conference rooms, <laughs> sitting there super comfortable, generating their <laughs> best ideas. And women were in those conference rooms like bracing our fingers and we yeah. couldn't, couldn't come up with an idea because we couldn't wait to get out. Yeah. All right. Guilty as charged. I'll add that to my list of things I got to fix. I need the future of work to be warmer. All right. Fair enough. Although the thing you, the thing I have going for me is the older I get, which is happening very rapidly, the less I like being cold. So, so I, maybe I'm moving your direction just by my, you know, Rapid aging. All right, we've made it to the lightning round. It's got two parts in your case. We have a special opening lightning round inquiry. One of the interesting things about your history is that you appeared uh, on what has gone on to become one of the most enduring franchises in reality TV show history, The Challenge, or as it used to be called, The Real World Road Rules Challenge, I think is what it used to be called. What do you personally make of the success and longevity of this thing that you appeared in quite some time ago, but it is still going? It, it arguably is stronger than ever now. Well, you know, Rob, I need them to know I'm a big deal. I'm a big deal to my parents. <laughs> I think it's wild that this show still garners viewership and is successful. Yeah. You have to attribute that to being pioneers in their right. space, you know, Real World and Road Rules was this mashup from Mary Alice Butum and John Murray. Mm -hmm. And John Murray was a famous documentarian at the time. And Mary Alice Butum was a writer for famous soap operas. And so when they came together for a lunch, they came up with a genre, which was a soapumentary. And so they would mm -hmm. document it. They would pause and document this thing, but they would kind of script it and, and add drama like a... Uh, soap opera. And yep. so John Murray, I think he still does the, I think he does the Kardashians. So you just, oh, does he? you kind of got to give credit to the OGs, the founders of this wild genre, which I think used to have very interesting people on it and now has just the kind of wild and crazy people on it. Do you stay in contact with any of the people you appeared with? I did for a long time. Mike, the Miz, the wrestler, and I stayed in contact for a long time. He's one of those people that guys loved him, girls loved him, and had mm -hmm. an infectious yep. aura around him. Dave Gentoli, who's now on A Million Little Things on ABC. And oh, he was, okay. He was also on Grimm. I was on the platform in Times Square recently. There was a bunch of girls surrounding him taking pictures, and he looks up, and he's like, Christina Pyle? Um, everybody... <laughs> you know, over, over enunciates my last name. He's like, pile! And comes running <laughs> over me. And these queens are looking like, who's this chick? And so, so we kind of reconnected. And it's fun to watch him on TV. I'm like, wow, we have wildly different lives right now. That's funny. I'm fighting a revolution in the workplace. And he's on my <laughs> TV at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's so, great. You know, there is no better study in personalities and inclusion and 
than to be on one of those shows stuck on an island with these people. They really should do reunions at this point. Because, uh, yeah. you know, a, a number, I, I won't date you or age you at all because you're younger than I am, but I'm a up. number of these folks, like if you just take, you know, there's this fellow, uh, CT, who's a, a character. I mean, CT's what, 40-something at this Is point, he? right? Like, uh, he's got to be damn close to 40. You know, that's, that's middle age. Like, let's uh, no offense to anybody, but 40 is middle age. Uh, and so it would be fascinating to see these people come back together at a different point, not in the context of, you know, can you climb a rope or like, you know, ski jump over, uh, you know, a whale or whatever, but like just sort of chit chat. I don't know. I, I look, I'd watch it, but, but right now in pandemic, I'd watch virtually anything. Yeah. All right. That was our, that was our uh, challenge lightning round. Wait, Rob, do you think Jackie would let me go on a hiatus to go back on one of the reunions? I'm willing to just approve it myself and then just, you know, be summarily uh, dismissed. But yes, I, I'll lobby on your behalf. How about that? How about that? All right. Three quick ones. Favorite pandemic meal that you have had in the past, you know, whatever it's been, 11 months or something. Uh, my partner's half Greek, half Italian. So the perfect dish. And I think it's like Greek Easter meal. It's so good. So lots of lamb. <laughs> That's a lot of lamb. Lots a lot of, of lamb. lamb favorite hobby or obsession launched by the pandemic? Have you picked something up along the way? I, I'm into like my third version of this, but uh, I'd love to hear yours. I returned to the guitar and I have the <sighs> like, I have the like kind of calloused fingers to prove it. I love it. Mm -hmm. So that is something you used to do and now you're back at it. It's something I was terrible at before and now <laughs> I'm terrible. Still terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I picked it back up. I picked it back up. Biggest prediction for 2021? Any topic? Oh, I mean, this is wild. Because if you could have told my dad, who's no longer with us, but if you could have told him we would be in, we would be in quarantine in a pandemic, and that Tom Brady would be on the Bucks and the Bucks would win the Super Bowl, <laughs> you like literally could have never told my dad that. So I mean, I don't even know. I honestly, I think that you are going to see people move out of the way and a rise in Black female leadership, and mm. you're not even ready for what that energy can unlock. I love that one. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm, I'm up for that. It's not biased at all. <laughs> no vested interest. <laughs> Christine, you've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. You are more than we could possibly have ever hoped for for our 100th episode. Mm, it has been a pleasure. You allowed me, the things that are on paper, you kind of allowed me to speak and get off my chest and it's been exciting and invigorating thank you anything else you'd want to tell anyone rob you are you are a gem and i hope to always be in your life well that you can bank on thank you both for you know the platform and the visibility is important and i'm super appreciative of it so thank you Thank you so much for joining us on the super gigantic, extra enormous, super califragilistic, expialidocious 100th episode of the Human Element Q song right now. Are you going to put Mary Poppins in here right now? Are you going to under the little underlying? No? I don't know. Anyway, he'll do something magical. Thank you, Jason. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Smash the subscribe button. Give us a comment. Send us a note. Give us a like. Tell your great aunt. You know we love all that stuff. And we will be back out to you real soon with episode 101. The journey continues. In the meantime, be well, 
and be just. Bye-bye.